Father, it is, I believe, within all of our hearts this morning, it is our desire that you speak. And thank you that you are still speaking today in your word, through your spirit, teaching us your word. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to love and worship and hands and feet to obey. If you do not meet with us, everything we do here this morning will be in vain. But when you do meet with us, everything we do here will be eternal. So may now, by your grace, I love your people well through speaking your truth in love to them. And may we, by your grace and for your glory, see Jesus in all his grace and glory. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to the little four-chapter book of Ruth. That's in the Old Testament tucked right between Judges and 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have a Bible for you. You'll find that Bible in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. It's page 262 in that copy of the church Bible. And as you're finding your place there, let me just say a special thank you to coming out on this frigid morning. How many of you would agree that it is frigid? For, for a kid who grew up in southern Missouri and spent seven, the last 17 years or so before moving here four years ago in southern Illinois. This is cold. Um, wow. Thank you for being here today. And those of you joining us online, thank you for joining us online today. I love our church family. I love being together. Just today, this morning, I received a text message from a friend of mine that read this. Faithful Christians gather together week after week and sing many of the same, same songs, see many of the same people, hear about the same God, because we always need the same grace and truth that only comes from the same loving and true God. Gathering together at church strengthens and equips us to live for Christ in this world. So thank you for coming today. Thank you for encouraging my faith in Jesus. I need this time each and every week. Everybody loves a good love story. From Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, which after I watched the film, I could make neither sense nor sensibility of it. And then there's Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. But the granddaddy of them all is William Golden's The Princess Bride. Can I get a witness this morning? Because this morning we begin a journey through one of the most moving love stories in all of Scripture. This story has all the elements of a classic love story. There's tragedy, loss, despair, triumph, hope, loyalty, and of course, romance. 
But it's a story that begins with ruin so that it can end with redemption. It's arguably the best love story in the Old Testament, perhaps even the Bible, because in this story, we're pointed to Jesus Christ, the greatest love story of all time, in Him coming to lay down His life for sinners. The best love story is what we're going to hear about for the next few months. And so, guys, there's no need to take your wife to a chick flick over the next few months. Just bring them to church. And you'll be good. Let's dive in to the book of Ruth, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, And remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of our God. So after reading the first five verses, and that's as far as we're going to get today, how many of you are glad you braved this cold morning to come and hear about death? Anytime you're reading a Bible story, such as the story of Ruth and Boaz, or David and Goliath, or Daniel in the lion's den, you need to remember that that is not a standalone story. It's a, it's a story within a story. It's a, a chapter in God's epic love story where he is redeeming a people for himself, bringing them from despair to delight, from hurt to hope, from ruin to redemption. But that isn't just the Bible story. If you're a child of God by faith in Jesus, then that's your story. Even this morning, in the midst of this frigid cold, you are living in the middle of the story God is writing, the story of his redeeming grace, because God isn't a spectator in in any of these stories. He's the hero of the story. And that's true, even when he writes tragedy and calamity into your story, even when after years of trying to have children, you finally get pregnant, and then for a third time you suffer a miscarriage. Even when your husband dies, leaving you a young widow with three young children, even when you're diagnosed with a debilitating or terminal disease, Because it's in those tragedies that we learn the big idea of Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5, that God writes every chapter of our story with the end in mind. He's taking us on a journey to a predetermined destination, and every mile along the way, he is with us, right there with us, guiding us over every hill and through every valley to bring us to glory where he will complete his work of redemption when we're at home with him forever. Do you believe that this morning? Do you? 
Philippians 1 verse 6 where Paul writes this, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will get us to the finish line. It's just that it won't come in a straight line on our journey there. Because on the journey, we will face unexpected twists and turns. Sometimes the twists and turns will be thrust upon us by God himself. But sometimes the twists and turns are the results of our own choices. Choices that begin right here where the book of Ruth begins with a dilemma. It's a dilemma that is confronting a husband and wife named Elimelech and Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they live in a very familiar place called Bethlehem. The same Bethlehem where David will grow up. The same Bethlehem where Jesus will be born. So there are good days ahead for Bethlehem. But these days are not good days in Bethlehem for two reasons. First, notice how the story begins in verse 1. These are the days when the judges ruled. Now, some of the judges we know from growing up in Sunday school or sitting in church for many years, they've become household names to us. Names like Samson and Gideon and a woman named Deborah. The period of the judges is the time between the death of Joshua and the coronation of Saul. But when the Jews would later sit around the dining room table discussing the good old days, no one would ever talk about these days. Because these are the days God's people are caught in a vicious cycle of rebellion and sin against God. The people would sin. And they would live in that sin. And then God would bring in enemies to Israel against them. And then the people of God would cry out to God for mercy and help. And then God would mercifully raise up a judge to deliver them. This was their cycle over and over and over and over again. And yet in the midst of this cycle, God shows to write a most beautiful love story to show us that his hidden hand is always at work even when we can't see even in the worst of times so just how bad are these times anyway well take a peek at the previous page in your bible and find the very last verse of the book of judges it's chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. It wasn't just that they had no earthly king. It's that they were living as if they had no heavenly king. And so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But here's the thing. When you live like the people were living in this time, when you live as though you are God, the real God will so often bring you to the end of yourself to remind you that he alone is God. And that's the case here in Ruth. These are not good days in Bethlehem 
Because these are the times of the judges. And secondly, there's a famine in the land. Now, we don't know why there's a famine. We don't know if it's the result of war or the weather. But we do know that God's hand is in the famine because he is sovereign over both wars and weather. And I say that on a very, very cold morning. But we also know that the famine would present a dilemma because as humans, we have to eat. Now, some of us live to eat while others of us eat to live. But to keep on living, all of us have to keep on eating. And I imagine that most of us in this room, if not all of us, are probably unfamiliar with true famine, real famine, where it isn't that you don't have any of your favorite food in the house. It's that you have no food in the house. You're going to bed feeling like one of my favorite cartoon characters from my childhood, Winnie the Pooh, with his tummy rumbling. And you aren't wondering when you'll eat again. You're wondering if you'll eat again. I mean, every day about 11.30 a.m., I say to myself, I'm starving. Every day. But you know, I'm not starving. It's hyperbole. But for Elimelech and Naomi, starving isn't hyperbole. It's reality. It's a real dilemma. Maybe you find yourself facing a dilemma this morning. It isn't hyperbole for you. It's, it's reality. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something at home. Maybe it's something about your future. Maybe you're considering marriage. Maybe you're thinking about relocating, especially on mornings like this. Maybe you're wondering about where you should attend college and what you should major in. God is not wasting your dilemma. God is using your dilemma to give you the opportunity to do Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, which means that in your dilemma, you obey God's revealed will, what God has made clear in his word. And then as you acknowledge him and follow him in all your ways, then he will make straight your paths. Just don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And when you do that, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So trust in the Lord, not yourself. Fear Him. Obey Him in that dilemma. Do what Elimelech and Naomi apparently don't do. Because when they're faced with a famine... There is no indication that they are looking for the wisdom of what God has said. There's nothing here about Elimelech going to God in prayer and asking, should I stay or should I go? There's just this. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
Elimelech has made his decision. He and Naomi and their two sons will leave Bethlehem for Moab. That's a land on the east side of the Dead Sea because Moab was known for being home to a fertile plateau. But what's crazy here is that the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And Elimelech's name means God is my king. So let's break that out. Let's break that down so that you can understand what the Jews who would be reading this text would hear when they read this text. The man who's named God is my king leaves the house of bread where God had planted him smack dab in the middle of the promised land. Remember that land that God gave to his people, the land where God promised to provide for his people, and yet... The man whose name means God is my king leaves the house of bread, even though God told his people at least two times to stay away from Moab. Don't go there, ever. Deuteronomy 23, Numbers 21. And God said that because the Moabites despised the Jews. You remember that the Moabites are descendants of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And you'll remember that the Moabites worshipped a false god named Chemosh. And to top it all off, there was a time, now listen to this, a time when Moabite women seduced Israelite men into sexual immorality and all kinds of idolatry, and God brought the house down, literally. He brought judgment down from heaven. 24,000 people were struck down dead. That's why God says, don't go there. But in Elimelech's mind, he has no choice. He's hungry. So are his wife and his two sons, who were probably teenagers by this point. And, and we all know how much teenage guys like to eat, right, parents? And we all know how teenage guys can get when they don't eat. And Malon and Kilion are hungry. So Elimelech will go to Moab. Listen carefully, please. There's a principle here that we can't miss. There will always be reasons to disobey God. Let me repeat that. There will always be reasons to disobey God. I mean, way back in the Garden of Eden, how did Satan tempt Eve with that forbidden fruit? He gave her reasons to disobey God, right? Come on, Eve. Listen, just, just a bite. That's all it'll take. And your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, there will always be a reason to take a peek at porn. There will always be a reason to cheat on that exam. There will always be a reason to lie to the boss or to lash out in anger at your spouse. If sin didn't look good, or feel good, or promise good, none of us would be tempted with sin. And that's why Hebrews 11 verse 25 tells us that sin provides pleasures. 
passing pleasures, temporary pleasures, soap bubble pleasures. There will always be reasons to disobey God, but there will always be a thousand better reasons to obey God. Do you believe that? Young people, do you believe that for you? Right here, right now. Parents, do we really believe that for us? Because Elimelech is about to learn that although the grass may be greener in Moab, he's playing with fire and moving to Moab. Because although we make our decisions, eventually and inevitably our decisions make us. Galatians 6 verse 7, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Choices have consequences. And we can make our choices. And we can control our choices. But we can't make and control our consequences. And that's why Elimelech's decision results in difficulties, even though initially he plans to sojourn in Moab. Look at verse 1. The Hebrew word here, sojourn, implies that he intends his family to be guests in Moab and not become citizens of Moab. I can just imagine the conversation Elimelech has with Naomi. Maybe it went like this. He says to her, okay, honey, it's time to go. But Elimelech, you know what God has said about going to Moab. I know, Naomi, but we aren't going to stay. It's just for a few weeks or a few months. We'll, we'll get some food and, and then we'll come back home. But that isn't what happens. They get there. And they discover that there is plenty of food there. And so they begin to feel at home there. And then they put down roots there for 10 years. It isn't what they intended. But as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. Because while they are there, Elimelech suddenly and inexplicably dies. We don't know how, and we don't know when it is during these 10 years. All we know that it is that he goes to Moab to avoid death, only to experience death in Moab. And Naomi's heart must be breaking. She's burying her husband in an unfamiliar place, surrounded by unfamiliar people. But that's just the beginning of her difficulties. Because the funeral dirge suddenly gives way to wedding bells. You say, hold on, Pastor Ken. That's good news, right? I mean, everybody loves a wedding. I love weddings. Man, when it comes to weddings, I am a softie. And one of the really cool things about being a pastor is that often I get to be up close and personal with the bride and groom during the wedding. I'm right up here with them. I hear things that you don't hear out there. I hear the whispers of, I love you. I love you. Did you bring the ring? 
I love that. I get to see tears of joy well up in their eyes. I mean, everybody loves a wedding unless you're a Jewish mom whose sons are marrying outside your covenant people, especially if they're marrying Moabite women like Malon and Kilion do here. We learn in chapter 4 that Malon marries Ruth, Kilion marries Orpah, and suddenly Naomi finds herself a mother-in-law to a couple of Moabite women when then the, the, the bottom totally drops out and Malon and Kilion die. There would have been one morning that Naomi wakes up to discover that not only is her husband gone, now her two sons are gone and she is left alone with her Moabite daughters-in-law. She is not only a grieving widow, she is now a grieving mother, and her sons have left her without any grandchildren. And by the way, that's going to be a major theme throughout the book of Ruth. There's no one left to carry on her family line. And in ancient Israel, that's the curse of all curses, that your family line stop with you. For Naomi, it's been a 10-year nightmare, summed up in just a few verses. It's complete with two weddings, three funerals, and no grandchildren. And it all leaves Naomi in total and utter despair. You can feel her anguish in the final words of verse 5. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband, period. That's it. Oh, how she must be wishing for a do-over. That somehow, some way, she could take an eraser to the previous ten years because the road that brought her from Bethlehem to Moab has proven to be the road to nowhere. She's an aging woman living in a foreign land left with nothing because she's lost everything, her security, her family, her providers, her hope, and her family is left teetering on the brink of extinction. Unless God steps into her story and does something spectacular, the family line will end with Naomi. And the big question she must be asking is probably the same question we're asking. Where is God in all this? The answer? He's right here. He's right here. We may not be privy to his presence. His grace and mercy and kindness may not always be visible to us especially in the tragedies that come upon us. But he's always right there with us. It's Hebrews 13, verse 6. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we can be sure that what David will write later after Ruth is that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Even when I can't see the goodness, even when I can't feel the mercy, even when God's hand is hidden, He is still there. Do you believe that? 
His name is not mentioned in the first five verses. But just because we can't see him doesn't mean he's absent. Do you believe that for you? Whatever the place, whatever we face, he's always right there with us, working behind the scenes with his hidden hand, setting the stage to overwhelm our despair with his deliverance. Deliverance. Now, I realized this morning, I can see it on your faces. It's funny the things you see when you're up here. I, I get that this has been a hard sermon to hear. There's so much tragedy, so much difficulty. And if we're not careful, we can walk out this morning discouraged. I don't want that for you because I want you to come back next week for part two. This is just the opening scene. It's God setting the stage for the amazing things he's going to do throughout the rest of the story. So spoiler alert here. Let's cheat a little. And I'm going to tell you where the story is headed. The story ends like it begins with Naomi crying again. But this time it's not tears of sorrow. This time it's tears of joy. Because God has stepped into her story to bring hope out of despair, triumph out of tragedy, life out of death. A baby boy has just been born to Ruth and her new husband Boaz. That boy's name? It'll be Obed and he will be grandfather to a shepherd boy turned king named David. You see, from all this tragedy, from this broken family, God will bring the Messiah. Wow. Now, if that does not get your blood pumping, I don't know what will on this cold morning. This is crazy that God is going to overturn the tragedy and ruin in Naomi's life and bring from it redemption. See, God shows us all the pain and suffering in the first five verses of the story so that when we reach the end of the story, we know that it, he is the one writing the story. It isn't fate or luck or chance or coincidence. It's God and God alone who brings redemption out of ruin and deliverance out of despair. Not just deliverance and redemption, but a deliverer and a redeemer. Because Acts 4 verse 12 says that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. And out of this tragic, traumatic scene, Jesus will come. That's how deeply God loves his people. 
that he will be working in and through tragedies and difficulties like this to bring about his son who will come to earth and endure the same kind of tragedy only on a scale a million times greater when the sinless one is nailed to the cross for sinful ones in our place. That is what is required. His life is required to purchase our redemption and to bring our deliverance. Do you know him? Does this story in Ruth 1 matter to you because it includes you, because you are one of those who has trusted in the Redeemer who comes from these verses? Is he your savior? What will the final chapter of your story look like? Will your eternity look like these first five verses? A forever wishing for a do-over. Or will your forever see tragedy and ruin only in the rear view mirror because they've been replaced eternally with triumph and redemption? It is the God of love who is writing the first five verses of Naomi's story. The God of love who will watch from heaven as his son is crucified. Because as Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what happened at Calvary begins right here in Ruth 1 with tragedy. Do you believe on Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus as the Savior from your sins? Because through the death of Jesus, life will come. Victory will be snatched from the jaws of defeat and hope will eternally overwhelm despair if we will, if we will, according to Romans 10 verse 9, confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Do you know him? Do you belong to him? And when you know Jesus by grace alone through faith alone, then here's the takeaway from this scene for you. Hope in God. Even in the worst of times. Hope in God, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Trust the one who has redeemed you by his saving grace because he is writing his sustaining grace into every chapter of your story, even the difficult and discouraging chapters. I was struggling this week with the takeaways, and I had listed out three takeaways because three is the perfect number for sermons. And so I was sitting in my office on Thursday, and Pastor Brandon came in, and I said, can you help me? I am struggling. I said, I can't, I can't put a bow on this. I can't, I can't bring it to a conclusion. I can't land the plane. And so we sat there and talked. And so much of what I'm sharing now, I learned from Pastor Brandon this week. You see, the greatest stories often begin in the darkest places, just like this story. The first five verses are dark. There is no light here. 
There is only confusion and isolation and frustration. But from the ruins of Naomi's life, God will set the stage for redemption. And this morning, listen, this morning, I know that some of you are in a dark place. And you need to hear that it's okay to find yourself in a dark place. And if you aren't in a dark place, someday you will be. You'll find yourself in a place where you see only obstacles and closed doors like you're walking around in a fog that you can't feel your way through. Where you feel all alone. But it's in the darkest of places where the light of God's hope shines brightest. You see, in her darkness, Naomi is going to learn things she would have never learned. She is going to know things to be true that she would have never known to be true. She's going to experience God's redeeming grace in ways that she could have never dreamed. Now, I get that when you're in that dark place, what I've just said can ring hollow. You might even bristle at the mention of hope and redemption, but you still need to hear that it's true. It's what Corrie ten Boom wrote while in a World War II concentration camp. The same concentration camp where her sister had just died, her only sister. And Corrie writes this. No pit is so deep that Jesus is not deeper still. And with him, even in our darkest moments, the best remains and the very best is yet to be. Glory is coming. Your redemption draws nigh because God has already written every chapter of your story with the end in mind. One day ruin will give way to redemption and the words of Psalm 30 verse 11 will be your words. Lord, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That isn't just the final chapter in Naomi's story. It will be the final chapter in your story. And although you haven't yet read that final chapter, it's already been written by your God for you. Redemption will replace ruin forever and ever. So set your hope in God. Amen. Father, may you you work by your Spirit, through your Word, in our hearts, in my heart. May you give us grace to obey you, even when we cannot see you, to trust in you and hope in you, even when we can't feel you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the dark verses in your word. Your word is authentic. It is real. It is genuine. Because it paints a true picture of what it's like to live in this world. So show us Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.